You are listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast. Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 81 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson. When we want to grow our practice, we often hit capital restraints. Sometimes we can work around these and finance growth out of cash flow, but sometimes we need more to really hit the accelerator. I went to see Jeff Zulman of Trailblazer Finance to find out more about financing business growth. Jeff is a specialist lender with a great insight into our industry. I think you will really like this interview. My first question to Jeff is, what is a specialist lender? What do you do? Here's Jeff. We've taken our skill set as lenders, specialist lenders, particularly to financial service intermediaries, and that means mortgage brokers, accountants, financial planners, white-collar professionals who run their own small to medium-sized businesses and whose primary asset is often the cash flow in their business and particularly the recurring cash flow. And we've, we were pioneers, hence the trailblazer, in finding ways to monetize it without saying to a person, give us your home, give us your personal family assets, let the business stand on its own feet. And about seven years ago, when I exited as the chief executive of one of Australia's largest mortgage aggregators, I saw how many professionals we had, rich cash flow, but couldn't borrow anything, and we were forever making loans. So when I exited, I set up the business, and people thought I was crazy, that nobody's making loans like this. And I said, if you do your homework correctly, you can unlock the value in their trail. Sometimes a sale is the right answer for a financial planner or an accountant, but very often they're making that sale because they have no alternative they're aware of. They can't get the capital that they want. If we could unlock the capital by taking the same asset that they're willing to sell and instead monetizing it for them, securitizing it and leaving them with the ownership of the client, leaving them with the ownership of the trail and leaving them with a percentage of the recurring revenue, they are at least 30% ahead in most situations after tax. Lending to finance services practices, that is your core business. Correct. Where do you get the money from? When I first started out, all the money came from my life savings from the businesses that I have built and sold. I suppose in Australian terminology, I would be called a serial entrepreneur. I have a background in investment banking. I worked for Goldman Sachs. I was trained in New York. I worked in their private wealth uh, division in Switzerland for a while and in London. And then I came out here backed by a number of my clients and I set up my first business. And I have built up and either bought into or created four businesses over the years and sold them. And this final iteration took the capital that I think and I went back into the casino with all the winnings and I put them down on the table and I said, I believe there is a new opportunity. At the beginning, I could get no backing other than my own. So I believe you have to eat your own dog food. So I did and I put the money out because I believe that ultimately 
white-collar professionals like small accounting firms, small financial planning, mortgage broking. These are people who have done that trade from girl to woman, boy to man. They have very good credit risks. They care about their reputation. They're professionals. Of course, you always get a bad apple, but by and large, they're a very ethical group, and that's been 100% my experience. Once I had done that for a few years, I then approached some high net worth family groups and some institutional clients, and they started to supplement the funding. I put a few million to work by that stage. Then I needed a few million more. And then I finally persuaded the first of the banks to join us. And today we have a syndicate. So I make a sandwich for every loan. Part of the money that goes in is my money. Part is, is the third parties, and third part of it is the banks. That gives us both the financial wherewithal, and it also gives us the ability to do the loans that banks wouldn't or can't write because I have the underwriting discretion to do that. There's a financial service practice, be it an accountant, a best agent, a tax agent, or a financial advisor, and they want to grow through an acquisition, but banks don't lend why do they usually don't lend because they just the, don't they like know to the lend industry. banks are historically there are two reasons in this industry why people will struggle at times the banks are good allies to have and they are a useful source of funds but they tend to have a lemming approach they all run off the edge of the cliff at the same time It's not core business to them, and they are somewhat opportunistic. So when things are looking good and rosy, they will come in in the herds and they will all charge after one another and compete for the business. As soon as you have a change in the industry, a royal commission, which we've just had now, a couple of years ago, an ASIC inquiry, before that, the change in the whole fee-for-service regime in financial planning, Every time there's one of those things, they take fright and it's like being in a game reserve at the watering hole and somebody shoots a gun into the air and all the buffalo charge away, leaving clouds of dust. And we stand there, we cough a little bit and we say, we're still here. And that's why we land up making the loans because people have found that when they get a loan, we often pick up a loan where they got it from a bank once. They've gone back to the bank, said, I've paid my interest, I've paid down my loan, I've been paying you for five years, I'd like to roll it over and refinance, get a new loan. And the bank says, sorry, we can't offer that, we don't offer them anymore. And they go, no, I haven't got any source of funding. When I stop providing this kind of funding, I'm out of business. I will be doing it good weather and bad weather. Do most of your clients require funding to do an acquisition or to fund internal growth? Excellent question. In fact, we find that there are three buckets that we lend to. One, there are those that are doing what we call inorganic growth, funding and acquisition. Those acquisitions depend on where we are in the cycle. So a couple of years ago, financial planning trail books were trading three, three and a half times their recurring revenue. Okay, so for example, if a financial planner has an annual income of $1 million, 
then it would sell for three, three and a half million dollars. Exactly. That's how it was. And the market was not terribly discriminating. They just looked at the recurring revenue and whether it was a function of that recurring revenue being derived from risk-based, so selling insurance-type product, whether it was for them doing superannuation type work, whether it was from doing old-fashioned investment products, market kind of just put their finger in the air and gave a blanket multiple. Then as the industry started to become more regulated, uh, those those multiples started to change. But in the old days, the M&A work would be, they would go, my business is worth three to three and a half times. I would like to be in mortgage broking. I can buy a mortgage broking business. I can get it for one and a half to two times. If I buy it and I take those clients across and I turn them into financial planning clients as well, not only have I got a second stream of revenue, but I have also been able to get a multiple expansion. So I've passed go twice. That was good buying and we would fund that type of activity. However, markets are efficient over time. Market theory tells you that over time things will reach an equilibrium and Financial planning practices and books have been coming down in value. And and at the same time, mortgage broking books have been going up. So now you're getting them roughly getting close to trading at parity. So now when we're asked to fund something, it's often a joint venture, a merger, a something where one has a mergers and acquisitions side, one has a lending side, put the some of the parts together, hopefully one plus one equals three. So here you had a financial planning practice, an accounting practice, and a mortgage broking, and they went, if we were all under the same roof, all working together under one brand, if we were sharing this head office cost or amortizing that over a base, we only had to have one accountant and one secretary and one marketing person could we make more money? And then we land up funding those type of things. So to answer your initial question, pure M&A where somebody's buying another practice still occurs. Modified M&A where we fund something that is like organic growth as well as inorganic growth. In other words, putting two pieces together that were sitting separately and then getting the value, we fund that. That's the first major category, category A acquisition finance. Category B of what we fund is to fund the actual organic growth. In other words, they come to us and they say, my business has been growing nicely, but I want to accelerate the rate of growth. I want to turbocharge it. I would like to hire another financial planner, another para planner, another loan writer, another junior accountant. I can't quite get there because of my cash flow, but I know that if I did it, it would free me up to go out and get more business and they could look after what we've got because I'm good at bringing in business, but I'm so busy doing the job that I'm in the trenches digging it out with a teaspoon. I can't get out and do the thing. So that is a second bucket. We will fund that, whether it's their marketing, whether it's a new office fit out, whether it is the hiring of new staff, whether it's training, that's the second bucket. Is is the second bucket a lot more risky than the first one? Actually, I think that the second bucket is less risky, and I'll tell you why. People are experienced at running their own businesses. They do that 
in small businesses, seven days a week and in sensible businesses, five days a week. And they get better at it with practice or at least they learn how to do something. A merger or an acquisition can be like a marriage. If you're lucky, you do it once well. If you're unlucky, maybe you do it a second time. If you're Elizabeth Taylor, you might do it five or six times. You never really gain the expertise. And people go into it with too much blue sky aspiration about the sum of the parts. They go, one plus one is going to equal three. Or sometimes they think one plus one is going to equal four. They often write one plus one does equal three, but there's a minus one because there was a whole lot of cost that they picked up. They didn't understand. There was a lot more bureaucracy. There was politics. There were things that didn't get right. So it goes, the equation goes one plus one equals three minus one equals two. And really they never added any value. I would say, and it's anecdotal, that a high percentage, maybe 50% of the acquisitions that we see never produce the fruit that is expected. So if I ask to your question again, I believe that often those are more risky than helping a person who's got a proven model to accelerate what they're already doing well. The third bucket is distress capital. Distress capital is for life's accidents. Sometimes we have people who go into a partnership maybe even as a result of the merger and acquisition, and it doesn't work out. Now, one partner wants to exit. The choice until now is neither has had enough money to buy the other out. It hasn't worked. Marriage has gone sour. The choice is to sell the family home. In other words, sell the business because neither of them can survive like that. What we'll do is we will fund one of them to buy the other one out. That's a distressed capital situation. Sometimes they do things that are ill-advised. So they don't pay their best payments every quarter. Their accountant says you can tick the box here and pay annually in September. Of course, they're expecting some big deal to land, some property settlement to occur, and it gets delayed or doesn't happen. Now they haven't got money to pay the, the tax office. We will come in and pay those payments on their behalf. That's an illustration. And sometimes life, as you know, throws up unfortunate situations. There can be illness. There can be matrimonial problems, divorces, separations. We fund that person because these are personal service businesses, as you said at the outset. If you look after the primary drivers of that business, in other words, the owners, and you give them the peace of mind and the capital so that their home affairs are sorted out, they'll get back to writing good business. If they're distracted because every 10 minutes they're back briefing the lawyers because they've got to go to court on their divorce or their dispute, the business suffers doubly so. So we've identified that third bucket of distressed capital and we provide money for those situations. And what's your default for each of those buckets. I can imagine you would have the highest default on the third bucket. I'm going to tell you something that's probably going to scare you. It's zero. We have never had a loan go bad, thank God. It's not to say we won't have a loan go bad, but first of all, we underwrite the loans conservatively. And second of all, we track the loans 
very closely. Half of the challenge is to lend money to the right people and the right quantity. If you are unwell and I have to give you a blood transfusion, to give you half a blood transfusion is hopeless. You're going to still die. And for me to to give you too much or the wrong blood is also not helpful. So we take a lot of care to identify worthy patients and the right treatment. But sometimes we don't get it right, but it's not because of the person being wrong. It's because maybe something else went wrong or it's taken longer. A person is worth 10 times more to us alive than dead. So we will work with that borrower and we'll rather nurse them through. We'll give them longer. We'll restructure the loan because ultimately I go back to what I said earlier. These are people that do this for a living. They're proud of it and that's what they know. If they don't work as a financial planner, what are they going to do? Work as a checkout clock at the local Coles. Even that's being automated. They don't want to give up what they know how to do. And therefore, they wanted to see it through. And therefore, they're good risks. That's why we've never had a bad debt. And please, God, we won't have one in, in the next short while. When is a good time to look for finance? What are the to-dos and the not-to-dos around financing? It's never too soon to start to get acclimatize and get a sense of what's involved in obtaining finance. The biggest problem that people have in life, there's so much information available on the internet. Anybody can get as many facts as they want. What they can't do and why experts like ourselves still exist is because we can provide context to information. We live with that and we can say, yes, but look at it that way. They can gain that kind of context and that kind of comfort if they start early understanding what type of lenders, what kind of products, what kind of thing. So they should start that as early as they need. The second component is when do they actually take up funding? I don't believe often that it's prudent to take up funding until you are at a point of maturity in your business that you have a reasonable run rate. So we will not lend to anybody who hasn't had their business for at least two years unless they can demonstrate to us a continuity. So maybe they worked in that business before or they worked in that industry doing the same job for a bank and they've moved across because we want them to be seasoned. And second of all, when you're relying on your recurring cash flows, You don't open the door on January the 1st and by January the 10th, you've got enough. It takes time for those clients to come back and to demonstrate a track record. So you become bankable with time. So the right point in time for them to qualify for funding is once they've established themselves so that they are more credit worthy. So not only they get it, but when they do qualify, the rates are at a reasonable level for them. And the third thing is, They shouldn't just borrow for the sake of borrowing. If you are smart about it and you are doing it for organic or inorganic growth purposes, then you should be borrowing because the cost of funding is a fraction of the return that you should be earning on the money you've got. So if you borrow money and you are earning, going to pay 10% interest on it, and that's tax deductible, it should be because the opportunity is going to produce 20% plus. So now you're utilizing somebody else's capital to leverage your return and to turbocharge your business. Sometimes people come to us and they say, 
I'd like to get some money because I'd like to make an acquisition. And I say, do you have the acquisition? They say, no, no, but we're starting to look. I said, that's wonderful. When you found it, don't sign the contract until you have come to us. We will help you. If it's a good acquisition, not only will we lend you funding against your own book, we'll lend you money against the book that you are buying. And knowingly, sometimes I lend out of the right pocket for their existing and out of the left pocket for their incumbent acquisition so that they put nothing into the acquisition at all. We put 100% of the capital. But if they come along and they come with something and we do the homework for them, Sometimes they'll spend a few thousand dollars getting a valuation done and we will point out all the blemishes in the process and they'll either go and negotiate the price down based on what we've told them the value is with an independent valuation saying, look, it's not my thing. This is what the funders have given me and this is where it's not as good. So we add value in the acquisition because our security is only as good as their asset they buy. Exactly. So we've got every interest in getting involved early. And the whole process might take four to six weeks. So when they come along wanting to borrow because they hope to have something, I go, if you are credit worthy in your own right because you built a good business, don't worry. Find the acquisition. If it stacks up, we'll bankroll it. So timing is also important. So you want to have done your homework, one. Two, you want to have got yourself to a point where you are mature enough that you've got a track record. And three, you want to make well-considered acquisitions. Put those three together as the right time to borrow. On your website, you talk a lot about trade books. Are trade books clients lists? Uh, excellent question. Really, the term is used very loosely. A trail book at its heart is the recurring trailer commissions, hence the word trail that have come through. The clients who give rise to those commissions are a second class of asset. So sometimes we will make a loan to somebody who only has the entitlement to the commissions, the trail commissions, and that's a trail book, and they don't have to own the customer. I see. So this is very close to financial advice. That's where you have commission. I looked at it as a, as a tax agent. And of course, as a tax agent, we don't have commission. But financial advisors, of course, they have commission. Correct. If they sell a life insurance, then they have recurring commissions. That is correct. But equally, if you took a tax agent, if we do our homework properly, and the tax agent's been in business for several years, and we look at their client base, we will say, how many of these clients have been with you for 10 years, eight years, we'll look at the attrition rate and we'll go, we can see from the pattern of behavior that they are good at what they do, that clients come back to them year in and year out. To us, that is recurring revenue. So yes, we have to look at that from a client perspective to see whether the Jones family came back every year since 1977 to get their tax returns, because unless something goes wrong, The Jones family should come back next year. And if every year the Jones family pays $1,000 to have their tax returns done, chances are next year they'll pay a thousand, maybe a thousand and fifty, and the year after. So that's a good risk. And we'll lend against a percentage of that. That's recurring revenue. But is that a good example for you of the difference between the quantifiable cash and the unquantifiable client value? On your website, you talk of less than. 
48 months, so less than two years, two to five years, and then more than five years. Using that for a client list of a tax agent, what is good and what is bad? Is it good to have most of your clients in the post more than five years bracket, or is it good to have most of your clients in the two to five? I, I assume it's not so not, good. Neither. Okay. I'll tell you why. I like to exercise. If I go into the gym and I put weights on a barbell and they were all on one side, I would either tear one shoulder muscle and a bar would not go up straight. I would like an even distribution along the length of the bar because then you can lift much more weight. It's the same here. If you've only got old clients that have been with you for a long time, that tells me this, that you're not refreshing your clients, that you've been resting on your laurels, that you're eating your harvest from crops that you sowed many years ago. If you've only got young clients that have been with you for a short time, means you haven't yet demonstrated how good you are at keeping those clients. You've shown you're a good hunter and that you can bring in new stuff. You haven't shown that you're a good farmer and that you can harvest them. So what we like to see is a nice even distribution where not only are they acquiring clients, they are sticky and they're staying. So we measure runoff rates and attrition and loss of underlying clients. And we look at how good they are at acquiring new ones to replenish those who will die, immigrate, not need their services anymore. So you need a balance of both. You mentioned before the three and a half that then later changed to one and a half times of recurring income. Um, no, let me clarify. It would have been initially three to three and a half as a broad parameter. It probably now sits closer to two to three, somewhere in that range, take a middle point of two and a half. So multiples of recurring revenue for financial planning books have come down. At the same time, when once it was three to three and a half, mortgage broking books were one and a half to two. They've increased. Now they've met somewhere in the middle, closer to two and a half times. So financial planners tend to have something between two and three multiple of trade. Yeah. Mortgage brokers used to be down at one, but one and, come, one and a half to two. But have come and, up. Yeah, and now they are more like two to two and a half. I see. And tax agents? Well, I will tell you that the rough rule of thumb for an accounting practice is between one to 1.2 times revenues. So I'm going to guess that depending on the exact nature of the tax agent's business, if they are an accounting practice who is also a tax agent, I would expect that it might trade at that. And what will make the difference and why these multiples become important is if I'm going to buy something from you, Heidi, and I'm going to go, well, will I get a return on it? If I'm confident that I'm going to have that business come back two, three, four times, then I can afford to pay you more because I've got longer to earn a return. With a tax agent, if they can demonstrate that it's sticky and it's going to come back, I suspect they'll get a higher multiple. But if not, if it's one-off business, then they're not going to get a very high multiple on it. Are most of your clients in the financial planning or mortgage brokering business? Yes. Okay, unless tax agents. Yes, agents. yes, yes. And I think that's probably an evolutionary process. But it's just a course of time. Sometimes as word gets out, as we develop a reputation, 
one tells the other. So, yes, at this point in time, they are. Could it be because financial planners are more risk takers and accountants are more conservative and hence tend to finance more out of cash flow? It's a very interesting question. Yes, as a general characterization, your typical accountant, you would expect to be more conservative, wearing a cardigan, gray hair, middle-aged man. In reality, I've met some very exciting accountants who recognize that the world is evolving and have the ability to run numbers better than most people, have seen through years of doing audits and doing annual returns which of their clients do business. And you'll be surprised at how many accounting firms have diversified and the partners in the accounting practices have interests in shoe businesses and in motor racing and all kinds of things. So underneath that exterior of the gray-haired man with spectacles and his checked cardigan, Scottish Pringle, lies some very exciting thinkers. So it does differ. You can't be too prescriptive about it. I see. So maybe the reason that more of your clients are financial planners is just because you happen to build your niche in that industry. I think so. And I think that seven years ago, when we started lending to mortgage brokers, it was almost unheard of for a mortgage broker to get a loan because it didn't exist, but financial planners could. Today, as we pioneered that space, so the mortgage broking piece is larger for us than the financial planning loans because as word has got out, we were the pioneers, we were the trailblazers. It could be that with the other industries, they take longer to ignite and people become aware of it through podcasts like yours, and so it develops. Sometimes the buyer doesn't have enough money to pay the seller what they want. The seller becomes them part the banker, or the seller has to make to get a higher price has to bring in a funder as part of it so they go look if i could get you to find a funder who can lend you the money and who understands my business and they'll lend you will you pay me more and if it doesn't have to come out of your pocket straight away so you can help to enhance the return that's where the two go hand in glove I see. So does this happen quite often that a vendor comes to you and says, can you help my buyer? That depends on how skilled the intermediary is. So if the buyer says, I'm only prepared to pay X and the seller says, look, I'm not prepared to sell for X. I wanted X plus 50%, but I'll sell for X plus 20. The intermediary says to the buyer, look, this is a fantastic opportunity. The person's come down, but that's their flaw. And the guy says, I don't have any more money. The intermediary says, but what if I could find you that 20% or 30% and you could borrow it so you don't have to take it? Would that make the difference? That can clinch the deal. So it's down to the individual who's helping to put together the transaction. And I would add there's another dimension. Sometimes the most natural buyer for your business is somebody who's already working in the business. They've been, they're the understudy, they're the junior but they've been drawing a salary. They don't have enough money, but they've done their due diligence every day that they've come to work for the last several years. They know if there's skeletons in the closet usually. They know how many of those clients they service, and they're the natural buyer. Now, they would buy it, and they might even pay more than a third party. They just don't have the money. So now you want to make sure that you enable that person who otherwise wouldn't have qualified to be a buyer to come into the mix, to be one of the 
parties that puts up their hand and now the whole thing becomes interrelated. You're going to lend them money against the strength of the business so that the one party can exit, allowing the other person to move into the driver's seat. So when you look at the range of lenders, who is doing what? What lenders are out there? Let me give you a historical context. If you turn the clock back five to ten years ago and you needed money to grow your business, you would really be going to the bank. And if the bank couldn't or wouldn't lend you money, you might have to go to family or friends or maybe solicitors who had some funds. But the depth of the capital markets in Australia is very shallow. It's a very shallow pond. And that was it. So the ability to find funding was limited. The biggest shift of the Teutonic plates in this industry has occurred in the last five years. And what's developed is a breed of new generation lenders like ourselves. These lenders grew up overseas in the US and then in the UK. And now Australia has got some homegrown lenders. These parties are known by different descriptors, but they are all what I would call an alternative finance channel. So some of the terms that are referred to would be peer-to-peer lenders or what they were called. These are people that don't have their own money, but what they do is they have a database, they have a platform, they have some kind of medium, and behind that they will have hundreds, potentially thousands of small investors who want to earn more return than they're going to get in the bank. On the other side, they have somebody who's looking to borrow the money. And the peer-to-peer lender matches those two peers together and puts a loan together depending on supply and demand. That is a new force. That's how it started. And then it became more advanced. They became called marketplace lenders. So like you would talk about if you went into a small town and once a week there was the market, you would create that thing. Everybody would bring their wares. They'd put out their wagons and you could collect the stuff. So marketplace lenders do the similar kind of thing, but it doesn't have to be a one-to-one relationship. Now you could have 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 small lenders fund one acquisition The stuff that used to be done only by the banks and the investment banks can now be democratized and offered to others. The third party of new entrants are people like ourselves. We are specialist lenders. We don't lend to everybody. If you want to borrow money because you have a very good vegetable grocery business, I'm probably not the right address. If you are somebody who has a business that you've done good business but it's got no recurring revenue, I'm not the right address. I've identified three or four or five verticals, industries, and those are the ones that I lend money to, and I want to be the first choice for all of them if they're good, and that's why I've gone to mortgage brokers, financial planners, accountants, people like that. I'm known as a specialist lender. That's the new pantheon of lenders that have emerged, which makes it much better for your average small business to go and find choice of funding today than ever before. What type of loans are out there? So there are a variety of loan products that have been developed 
And as the market matures, more and more derivatives of those products. We ourselves released a new product three weeks ago. We have one on the drawing board that we are testing now. And with this kind of innovation is wonderful. If you want to try to break into categories, I'll give you an example of the type of products that we offer and you may find replicated out there in the market. There will be a product available for somebody who wants to make an acquisition. They need a big lump sum of money and they need it upfront in one hit. That's called a term loan. That means you borrow it and you pay it over a set term. That term, in our case, we are medium-term lenders. So we will lend you the money and you'll pay it back in equal installments over two to five years. That's principal and interest. So we'll take whatever you have to pay and break it up into 36, 48, 60 installments. That's a term loan. The second kind of product that's available is designed for somebody who goes, I want to do that organic growth that we described. I want to hire somebody. I want to do a marketing project. I don't want to go and commit to those services without knowing I've got the money, but I don't want to draw it all today because I don't need it all today. So what we do is we put in place a facility for them and they come and draw it down in tranches as they need the money. And then they, each tranche is like a separate sub loan and it gets paid back separately. So that becomes their war chest to use. And they may even use it for a small acquisition. That's a second product. A third type and of... So the second product you call... A facility, facility yes. Facility a facility loan. loan as opposed to a term loan. A third example of a product is where somebody's in business, they've got very good quality clients, but those clients are slow payers. Their clients might be a government department. They're never going to go bankrupt. They're going to pay them the money, providing they provide the goods or services, but they may have to wait 60 to 90 days. Meanwhile, they've got staff to pay. They've got rent. They've got bills. So what they do is they take that invoice and they give it to somebody else who discounts the invoice it's from the exactly. So the invoice might be worth a hundred dollars. Somebody might give them eighty-five dollars now, and when it's paid, give them another five or ten dollars. So it'll cost them that different. That's invoice discounting. That's a third product. So there's a range of different products out there. We have probably six or seven in our stable of products. I see. Okay, so we covered term loan, facility loan, factoring or invoice discounting. discounting. The other three are too minor to mention? Uh, not that they're too minor. They develop more and more levels of complexity, but let's try it. We have something called a participation loan. A participation loan is a little bit like a mixture of debt and venture capital. It's very unique and it's something that a bank would not do. Heidi comes along to me. She's a rising star, but she needs to borrow more than her business can afford to pay now. So giving her half that blood transfusion wouldn't work. But I'll take a view and go, Heidi's the kind of person I'd like to back. So instead of lending her up to 75% of the value of her book, I might lend you up to 90% of the value, but instead of getting a set return, we will take a percentage of what you get 
up to a certain ceiling. So we'll share a bit of the upside and get rewarded for it. Anything over and above that, you keep going, we don't get any more. So we hit our ceiling. And equally, if things don't work out, it goes bad, you make an acquisition that isn't so good, we will share part of that loss. So if we were going to get 10% of the upside, we might get 10% of the downside. And so we'll get a, a floor that's lower. So that's called a participation loan. That's another illustration of a product. And the fifth? So we have a product called a multi-redraw facility or an, an MRF. A multi-redraw facility allows a client to get a mixture or a hybrid of the term loan that I described and the facility. What that means is this. You come to me on day one and you borrow $100,000. I give you the entire 100000 and every month you're paying me back $5,000, let's say. But you might need some more money and your business is growing. And you know that you need capital to grow. So what's the point of giving you the capital to do the good job and then you need it for growth capital? So we allow you to come back and redraw it multiple times. As long as you meet the ratios, we'll allow you to come back and you might have paid 5000 a month back for five months. You've got 25000 worth of credit. You need the twenty five. We'll let you draw it back out again. We'll recalibrate the rest of your loan and off you'll go and you'll get the money again. So you recycle the capital. That's an MRF. And the last one? Well, so we, we have a product that we are busy working on. So that, that's new. Yeah, that's new. I want to be hold that one up my sleeve, if I may. And the reason is that we have just had the first client approved to take the loan from us. And before we go out to the whole marketplace, I like to, to see, see exactly. Goes. We've developed a new car, which on the road. But before we offer it to everybody to drive, I want to make sure that it did everything that the engineers said it would do. Mm-hmm. And what are the interest rates on these five different loans we spoke? So what's the interest rate on a term loan typically? So what I should explain to you to place it in context is we are a rate for risk lender. In other words, if you went to get a home mortgage today, you could walk into any branch and say, I have a house, I would like to borrow money. Can you tell me what your interest rate you could find it published? It's one rate for everybody within a band. Ours puts everything through an algorithm. So we know that Heidi might be more responsible than Steve. She might have had a longer trading history. She might want a shorter dated loan. She may have a better quality collateral. We look at three major categories when we do this. And within each of those are multiple subcategories, but we look at the character of the borrower, the credit quality of of that borrower, and we look also at their collateral. What are they putting up? What's the book like? So those three C's will determine the rate that we charge for the loan, and it'll be within a band, but the band will be roughly the same for a person as what they might pay if they went to the bank to get an unsecured overdraft. That's a good indicator that I tell people, look at the unsecured overdraft rates that a bank would charge as an indication. The difference being is there's a much higher chance that they will qualify to get the loan from us. And also we are much quicker to turn the loan around than a bank if it's at all complex. And if it's complex, banks 
don't tend to do the small loans, which is why you were asking about our thing. When we play in the space between 30,000 and 500,000, we own that space because banks go, it's too expensive for us to do, to customize for a small loan. For a big one, we'll send out the big banker. For the smaller one, it has to be very in the box and given to a less experienced banker. We run a much leaner overhead and you get experienced bankers like me who will get involved in smaller loans. So your interest rate is a rate for risk interest rate, which means you tailor it to the specific business case, but it's not so much different of whether it's a term loan or a facility loan. So one can't say a facility loan tends to be more expensive than, than a term loan. No, and that's why to do a good job for the borrower, sometimes they go, can I borrow $100,000? And they want to take it all. And I look at it and I go, but you're not going to need all this money now. If I stagger it and let you draw it down and give you a facility, the interest rate may look a bit higher on the facility, but here I calculate the repayments. You're going to pay less over the facility life because you don't pay any interest for the money that you haven't drawn. So if you don't need it or you don't need it for a period of time or you never get to draw it, you don't pay any interest on it. So it's our job is to show them and say which of the products will be better for them. I see. Okay, so the, the at face value, the facility loan usually has a slightly higher interest Correct. rate. Correct. But, but in practice, in practice it out to exactly, exactly. up to 75% of the value of the underlying trail book that we're lending against. As I said, there are products that would allow you to go higher than that if, if we qualify uh, for that. But as a general rule, up to 75%. And with the tax agent? How we have not pure tax agents. We have accounting practices who have got a big tax agency component to their business. And there you probably find that it can be 65% of valuation. So it will depend on what's there. What's as important as that ratio is the serviceability. We have to look at their business. There's no point in us lending money to a business that's struggling and increasing their debt load and their interest and their repayments every month. That's like you come to me because you're drowning and I throw you a lifeline and then I sit on your back, you're going to drown even faster. I've got to relieve you of some of that burden, not increase it. What are the typical mistakes you see when somebody approaches you about a loan? I'm amazed by how ill-prepared some applicants are when they come to get a loan. At the end of the day, you should be putting your best foot forward from the very first time that you step up to even inquire because we're forming a view about that borrower and we're looking, is this person reliable? Do they appear to know what they're doing? Are they going to be a risk to us because they're well-intentioned but they have no idea? And we certain things are hard, quantifiable facts. They're numbers and they're there. But others are... Gut feeling. Well, but a gut developed from years of experience. So you give them an application form to fill in, they fill in only half the material. 
you give them the application form to fill in, then you go through it with them on a video conference call, you query stuff and you quickly see they filled it in incorrectly. And that's even from people whose life job is to fill in information. So the first answer to the question is, if you're serious about borrowing, get serious about borrowing. In other words, do a proper job of it. Don't just go, oh, you know what, I'll just throw it over. You will always find some desperado lender who's prepared to lend, but you'll pay the price because if, like ourselves, you have a lot of people coming to you because your rates are good and your products are flexible, you can afford to pick and choose and capital's not unlimited. So put on your best pair of shoes and then polish them. Make it look good and be prepared with the answers. Make sure that you've got everything to hand and help the process. That's the biggest mistake. It goes without saying that they need to be honest. If we find in the process that they have told us porkies, chances are they won't qualify at all for a loan. I am a big believer that even though it's a business loan, you are banking that individual. And I don't regard them or refer to them in our organization as our borrowers. I refer to them as our clients because it's that kind of relationship. And the good ones make it clear how they're going to use the money. They build a rapport. And so when they come back for the second or the third helping, it's a no-brainer. We know them. We've seen how they've delivered and it's as easy. And they know that they've got us in their corner as a financial partner and a backer. That's my advice. Welcome back. Something I forgot to ask Jeff in the interview, but that he mentioned later is that Trailblazer Finance currently has almost 10 billion in underlying assets that finance its loan portfolio. That is a huge number, 10 billion, and all that without any defaults so far. In the next episode, episode 82, Ben Sewell of Sewell and Kettle will talk about phoenixing. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.